Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 14. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there is one there in the pew in front of you, and you turn to page 19 in our pew Bibles. But today we are picking up the account of Abraham. This uh, chapter 14 actually goes very, very well with chapter 13 just because it picks up um, with where Lot and Abram left off after their conflict at the end of chapter 13. And so we will begin reading today in Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 1 and on through the end of the chapter. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedarlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these later kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedarlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedarlaomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shavah, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedarlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fell, fled into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eschol and Aner, and all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedarlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God, most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. 
I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. To honor to Eshkol and Mamre, let them have their share. Let us pray. Our gracious and holy God, our Lord and Father above, we're told that you reveal your salvation, your glory, yourself in your word. As we look towards this account in the life of Abram, we ask that you uh, give us your Holy Spirit so that we might see that glory, so that we might see that salvation. And we might see your hand of providence in history and in scripture working towards the salvation of your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question has been asked before, how does God work in the world? God has promised in Genesis chapter 12 when he called Abram out of the land of Ur and out of the land of Haran. The last part of that promise was that God would bless those who blessed Abram and he would curse those who cursed Abram. And today we are going to look at these two kings, the king of Sodom, the king of Salem, and we are going to see how God works out the blessing of those who bless and the cursing of those who curse and also see how God works in the world. Now, in the previous chapter, at the end of the previous chapter, we saw Abram and Lot in a bit of a of a pickle. They were fighting over the land where they were living because their flocks and their households had grown to the point where when if they both lived in the same area, along with the Canaanites who lived there, the land could not support them. And so Abram, knowing that God had promised him the land, turned to Lot Uh, humbling himself before a social inferior, he humbled himself before Lot and he says, you choose where you live and I'll go the opposite direction. If you choose to live on the left-hand side, I'll go to the right. If you choose to live on the right-hand side, I'll go to the left. And so Lot surveyed the area and he saw that the plain of Jordan was very fruitful. It was water. There was water there. Crops were growing. There was grass for his flocks. And he says, I'm going to settle in that area over there because it looks better. We're going to see a little bit today that actually gets him into trouble. But Abram ended up through Lot's choice in the land that God had promised him. And so today we pick up the story with this king. Now, we read a bunch of names. We read a bunch of name areas. I butchered a bunch of names. I butchered a bunch of area names as we read through there. As you're reading through this and you, you get to a name like... Kedar Lammer or whatever, you just do your best and move on. It's not a big deal. It's a big deal that they're in there because it reminds us that this is a historical document, but if you can't pronounce them, that's okay. But this king, Kedar Lammer, was the leader of a coalition of a total of four kings, and they were from the east. Now, we don't know specifically where these kings were. We don't know specifically where their cities were, but they match names that are Babylonian and from the area of Turkey during this period in the ancient Near East. So the important thing for us to remember is these were strong kings from the east that lived outside of the promised land, outside of the land where Abraham was. Now there were these four kings from the east had at some point in the past uh, conquered the five kings kind of on the southern end of the Jordan River down near the Dead Sea. And for 12 years, they had this great relationship where these five kings sent money to the four kings and everything worked well. Well, at the end of the 12th year, the five kings said, hey, there's five of us and only four of them. Why are we sending them money? And so they lived a year in peace where they didn't send the tribute. They didn't they they broke the covenant with these four kings. 
And Keter Lammer and his other three friends um, let this go for a year, but in the, in the 14th year, they headed for these five kings. And they didn't just head for these five kings. They defeated every little city-state, every little kingdom that they passed on their way down there, kind of looped around the southern end of where these five kings were, conquered a couple other city-states, and then attacked the five kings on the southern end, the, the plain of Sedim, I believe it's called here, which is probably now underwater. It's uh, the southern, probably now the southern end of the Dead Sea, which is under 10 to 20 feet of water these days. We have evidence from Roman history that this portion of the Dead Sea was dry land until about uh, the time of Christ's birth or the beginning of the Roman Empire sometime in those first couple hundred years. So they had this battle on this area. The four kings beat up on the five kings, and as the five kings' armies were trying to escape, they fell into these tar pits. And um, for a few minutes, for a few verses, these four kings, these five kings, excuse me, uh, leave the story. And Abram is brought into the story because when these four kings conquer Sodom, we find Lot living in Sodom, and they kidnap Lot and his family and his possessions, and they head back north. Well, Abram is told about his nephew Lot being kidnapped. He gathers up his armed men out of his his household, which we're told are about 318, plus some people who lived in the same area he did that he was in a loose covenant relationship with, and they go after this army. And in the middle of the night, they divide up their army, they attack in the middle of the night, and they, they rescue Lot. They gather up all the plunder that the four kings had um, had gathered as they came down militarily through the promised land and then back up through the promised land. And Abram and Lot head back home. We, we, we learn from the scripture that uh, Abram pursued them and destroyed them all the way as far as north of Damascus. So Abram and Lot and, and Mamre and Eshkol and, and Honor are headed back toward uh, the area where they lived. And they are greeted by two kings. They are greeted by the king of Sodom and they are greeted by the king of Salem. And we're going to see how we're going to contrast these two kings and how they interact with Abram and how we see God beginning to keep his promise to bless those who bless and to curse those who curse. First, we're going to look at Sodom, the king of Sodom. Now, the king of Sodom greets Abraham. He's actually interrupted by the king of Salem, by Melchizedek, but we'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, but we're told that um, after Abram returned from defeating the kings allied with Keter the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And then dropping down to verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God, most high creator of heaven and earth. And I have taken an oath that I will not accept that I will accept nothing belonging to you. So what we see here is that the king of Sodom greets Abram demanding. What are the first words the king of Sodom says to Abram? Give me. You ever, you ever have people like that that the first time you talk to them or you haven't talked to them for a while and they call you up and the first thing they say to you is, hey, what can you do for me? Or give me this, or I need that. That's kind of the picture we get here. Sodom has had, uh, the king of Sodom was defeated. 
it kind of hints at in here that he ran away, did nothing to help Abram go up and get rescue Lot and get his own goods and people back from these four kings. And the first thing he does when he greets Abram, there's no thank you for rescuing my people. There's no thank you for getting my stuff. He's like, give me. Give me what is mine. It, it's, it's a very disrespectful, very disdainful greeting to Abraham. And Abraham responds to him in a very wise way. Abraham understood that sometimes large gifts come with large obligations. You know, the king of Sodom says, give me my people, but keep all the plunder, keep all the money, keep all the flocks. And Abram says, look, I have taken an oath before God. That's what it says when I've raised my hand before God. Actually, it would be the other hand. It'd be the right hand. You know, you think about it, you go to a courtroom. What do you do? You raise your right hand. I swear to promise to tell the truth. Oh, yeah, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God, or some version of that. Abram has taken an oath. God's promised to bless Abram. And so Abram has taken an oath that I will only be blessed by God. And so he says, no, not only take your people, but take your plunder as well. I don't want you thinking when you see how blessed I am by God, I don't want anybody around here thinking they did it. The king of Sodom gave him all that money. That's why he's blessed. The, the king of Gomorrah gave him all that money. That's why he's blessed. The king of this or the king of that gave him everything. Abram says, I want the world to know when they look at me that everything I have came from God and from God alone. It's a, it's a trust. Remember, we talked a little bit before about Abraham's trust had to grow. We're going to see it falter later on, but it had to grow. And this shows Abram's trust in God. So the king of Sodom greets Abram with disrespect and with dishonor. And we'll see in Genesis chapter 19 that that curse of disrespect comes back and Sodom and Gomorrah will be cursed for what they have done as well. But let's compare him to Melchizedek. What's the first thing we hear about Melchizedek? Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. Melchizedek greets Abram with food. Now, a lot of commentators look at this and they say bread and wine, and, and I think they push the metaphor too far. They say, oh, this is, the, this is the Lord's Supper shown for us in the Old Testament. No, it's just an ancient Near Eastern way of saying he laid out a feast for him. It'd almost be like saying if somebody comes over to your house for Thanksgiving and you've got the spread out there on the table, you greet them at the door and say, hey, I've got bread and wine for you today. Does that mean you have the Lord's Supper set up on the table there for them? No, it means you've got the turkey and all the fixings ready to go. It's this big feast that he lays out for Abraham, for his men. He greets them with hospitality. He blesses Abram and his men. It's, it's been a long battle. It's been a long walk back from the battle. You think Abram and his men were tired? Absolutely. They needed a feast. They needed to be refreshed. They needed hospitality in a safe place. Melchizedek is the king of peace. Salem is shorthand for Jerusalem, but it also comes from the root word for peace. He is king of peace, as we are told in Hebrews chapter 7. But Melchizedek does not only greet him with hospitality and with food, he greets him with words. And he greets him with a blessing. Now, in our, in our minds, we would expect a blessing to come along with food because that's what we do, don't we? We sit down at a meal, we sit down around the table, and we say the blessing. 
Well, a blessing in this context, a blessing for the original uh, audience here, would have meant more than just a prayer we say over food. It's, it's the way God affects our lives. It's the bringing of joy. It's the bringing of fullness. It's the bringing of stability into life through a reconciled relationship with God. It's this idea of, a, of wholeness in life. We talk about in our culture, we talk about feeling empty. Blessing for Abram was when it came from God was a sense of wholeness, a sense of fullness, a sense of joy in a reconciled relationship with God. And Melchizedek brings this blessing and the blessing is blessed be Abram by God most high creator of heaven and earth. And what he's saying here is he's saying, may Abram be full, may he be joyful, may he be stable. And may that happen through God most high who has created everything necessary for that blessing to happen. The creator of heaven and earth is not just a reference back to Genesis 1. It's a reference to the fact that God has done everything necessary for Abram for him to be blessed. And then he says, and Abram, blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, we cannot give God joy or stability or fullness in life. We can't even give him a reconciled relationship between him and us. So what does it mean for Abram to bless God? That means to take that fullness, that joy, that stability through the reconciled relationship and to worship God, to give him praise. Oftentimes in the Psalms, you'll see this back and forth between blessed be God and I will praise God because he has blessed me. A lot of times in the Psalms, it's the same word for blessed and for praise. Not every time, but a lot of times we bless God by worshiping him, by praising him. And Abram realized that Melchizedek was a mediator of this blessing between God and between himself. And what did he do? He worshiped. And how did he worship? Well, he gave a tithe of all the plunder. Now, the temptation right here is to go ahead and just run with the tithe. Okay, as a preacher, you know, anytime you see tithe, you got to go, hey, we had the tithes and offerings earlier. Did you put your money in the plate? Well, that is a point that is not the point here. The point is God blesses Melchizedek for blessing Abraham. And how does he bless Melchizedek? By Abram giving him the tithe. That is Abram's worship. And so the principle for the tithe is there. The tithe will be filled out as the law is written, as Moses receives the law from God. The tithe will be filled out as a regular thing. But the principle is there. This is not a duty that you do simply because God said, thou shalt tithe. This is worship. This is giving a blessing because God has blessed you. Abram kept, Abram had plunder. God had blessed Abram through military victory. And Abram, in worshiping God, turned towards Melchizedek and blessed him through that. And any time the Israelites would have heard this, would have read this, um, they would have thought priestliness. They would have thought Jerusalem because King of, uh, because Salem is shorthand for Jerusalem in the scriptures. And they would have seen this relationship between Abraham and a priest. Not only is he called a priest, but he does what the priest does. He mediates the blessings of God and he receives the worship of Abram. 
A couple interesting things that we see about Melchizedek that's pointed out to us in the New Testament reading that we had. In a book of genealogies, in a book of families, in a book of establishing the family of God, what is Melchizedek missing? Parents. We're not told who, where he came from. We're not told what his nationality was. We're not told anything about him. We also notice that this is it for Melchizedek. As much greater as he was than Abram, Abram would not have given him the tithe unless he had seen Melchizedek as somebody greater than him. He disappears from Genesis. He disappears from the Old Testament until we get to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. David is writing this psalm talking about the perfect David to come, the Messiah to come in the future who will fulfill all the promises that David had been given and the promises that were even given after David. And we talk about Jesus as that promised king, and we oftentimes focus on Jesus as king. And that's rightly so, because he has been given the scepter here. He's been given the military might here. But we forget as well that Jesus was also prophet and priest. And so Hebrews in chapter 7, which we read earlier, picks up this theme from, from Psalm 110. It says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Once the law was established, where did priests come from? Came from the line of Levi, specifically the line of Aaron. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He couldn't be a priest according to the law, so there had to be another way in which he was a priest. We're not given a father and mother. We're not given an origin story or an ending story for Melchizedek, not because he has lived forever and will live forever, but because we're supposed to think that thought. A priest who has no beginning or no end. When we see Melchizedek, that's what the author of Hebrews picks up on. That's where I'm getting that from, is from Hebrews chapter 7. I'm not just making that up. But what did a priest do? A priest gave blessing, mediated blessing from God to his people. What are we told in Numbers chapter 6? Every time the people gather, give this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord turn his face upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you and give you peace. But what else did the priest do? The priest stood between a holy God and an unholy people. The priest, the priest took care of the sacrifices so that a holy God could live with unholy Israel. But what did they have to do with those sacrifices? They had to give them again next year or even tomorrow or even five minutes from now. If we're honest with ourselves, those sacrifices had to be given over and over and over again because they weren't enough. We needed a perfect sacrifice. We needed somebody to stand between our unholiness, our sin, our rebellion against God, and God's holiness to take the punishment from God for sin so that we might have righteousness and rescue. And the author of Hebrews says Jesus was that sacrifice. Jesus was that priest. 
why, is, why don't we do the sacrificial system of the book of Leviticus anymore? It's not because the temple doesn't exist in Jerusalem. It's because it's been done once and for all. And it doesn't have to be done again. And so that is the ultimate blessing that comes from Abraham to the nations, even ourselves. But that is what Melchizedek pointed to. We see God's blessing those who bless Abram and cursing those who curse Abram through the account of Melchizedek and the the king of Sodom. Now, there's one other person that we really haven't focused on all that much, and it's kind of the main human player in the saga as we go through now, and that is Abram. What do we see Abram doing? Remember, we go back to the beginning of chapter 12. Abram was in the land, there was famine, and he left the land and he lied. And God rescued him from his lie. He brought him back to the promised land and and he trusted God. And God rewarded him with the land for that trust. Not because of Abraham's trust, but because God had promised to be faithful to Abraham and give him that land. So Abram is secure in the land. He has enough people in his household to have 318 trained soldiers, all his own. And God has blessed him. And what does he do? As soon as his nephew Lot is in trouble, he goes and he does something. He acts to rescue Lot. Now, my temptation when I look at this is to say, now, wait a minute. This is Lot's own fault. You know, he stood up on the high place. Abram gave him the choice of land, and he chose to pitch his tents and camp outside of Sodom. And then actually in this chapter, we see that he has decided to move into the city walls of Sodom, and he lives there. And we're going to see in chapter 19 that he actually becomes a respected citizen of the city of Sodom. He has taken steps to move into a lifestyle that gets him in trouble. You know what my temptation to say is? He made his bed, he might as well lie in it. Or when you roll around with dogs, you get fleas. Or whatever saying you want to say to say, you know what, he earned it, he deserved it, let him wallow in his own misery. What does Abram do? He goes after him. He acts on behalf of God to bring blessing not only to Melchizedek, but to Lot as well. I think it's interesting. We see the king of Sodom curse Abram, and we're going to see him get his curse. We see Melchizedek curse Abram, and he gets his blessing. Lot basically cursed Abram by putting himself over Abram and taking the choice that Abram gave him. And yet Abram tries to bless him. He goes after him. He chases him. Whose job is it to bless those who bless us and curse those who curse us? It's God's, isn't it? It's not ours. Abram continues to pursue Lot. Abram continues to act on behalf of Lot to rescue him. And I think what we see from Abram's acts toward Lot and also toward Melchizedek is that the life of faith oftentimes is a life of action. We have a tendency in our lives and in our worlds to kind of sit around and say, I know God's going to bless me, so I'll move when he does. I know God's going to direct my steps, so I'll take that first one when he does. That's not scriptural. Scripture says because we have faith, God acts through his people, and faith requires action. We've talked recently about the Protestant Reformation and celebrated the 500th anniversary of that Reformation, and we've talked mainly about the theology of the Reformation. And while that's important and kind of well within my wheelhouse, 
we forget the action of the Reformation. When the Reformation hit France, the king of France and the Catholic government in France didn't like it at all. And people poured out of France into Switzerland by the hundreds of thousands. John Calvin started a fund. John Calvin started in the church there in Geneva, started the means by which they might minister to these refugees. Faith takes action. So what action does our faith take today? Well, if all of this is new to you, if, if, if the idea of a Savior standing between you and a holy God is something new to you, something that you don't understand, something that you have not embraced, the action to take is to embrace it. The action to take is to say, God, I am a sinner before you. I deserve your judgment, and yet thanks be to God that Jesus stood in my place and became that perfect sacrifice. If you have asked Jesus into your heart, if you have accepted his sacrifice on your behalf, look at your life. See where God is calling you to act. Now, sometimes action is as simple as that alarm goes off in the morning and, oh my goodness, I really don't want to get up and go to work, but I have to because that's how God has determined for me to support my family. Sometimes action is as simple as that. Sometimes, however, action is taking those loved ones that we have that have made the bad decisions and going to rescue them. It might be a physical rescue. It might be, you know what? They're hanging out at the wrong house. They're hanging out at the wrong place. And I physically have to go and get them. Sometimes we're not able to physically go and get them, whether it's from distance away from them or whether it's because of our own health. Sometimes that action is pleading on our knees before God. You rescue them. You bring them what they need to draw them to you. I can't do it. You do it. And that doesn't stop. And sometimes it's friends. Sometimes it's family members. Sometimes it's people we just met last week. But we wrestle on their behalf that God draws them to him. And we act when God gives us the opportunity. We act to bless them whether they curse us or whether they bless us in return. God is a God who acts and blesses this world through his church. Act on God's behalf. Let's pray. Our gracious and holy God, our Lord and Father, we do thank you that Abram worked to rescue Lot, even though Lot had cursed him. We thank you that Abram worked to bless this world. We thank you that he even blessed the king of Sodom, even though the king of Sodom had cursed him. Help us to be a blessing in this world. Help us to embrace your gospel. Help us to strive to rescue and to bless those who have rebelled against you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.